welcome to the I Am A Health Visitor podcast. I'm Jenny. And I'm Amy. And uh, welcome. If you're new to the podcast and you've um, pressed play and wondering now what on earth health visitors are, you might want to look back at our So What Is A Health Visitor podcast from... Oh, April, May time? <laughs> I've realised I've written that title down and gone blank. Um, I'll look it up. Look yeah. it up. We'll get back to you on that one. Um, <laughs> but also, April. Oh, thank you. Let's see, Dave, our guest today, ah, is on board already. Thanks, thanks, Dave. <laughs> Good job you know what we're doing. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, so we're here at the um, Unite Office today, and we're talking to Dave Mundy, who used to be one of our um, professional officers of health visiting, but is now lead professional officer for mental health for Unite. Um, but he also sort of has an ongoing interest in health visiting and uh, you might have seen him in The Observer last weekend with a story about his report he's completed um, called um, Health Visiting a Re-Endangered Species and uh, so we thought we'd grab you for a chat about it. Yeah. Thank you. Hi. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> so if anyone didn't see the article, Where on Earth Have You Been? We'll be linking to it in the blurb. But do you want to tell us a little bit about it and how it came about? Absolutely. Uh, It started with uh, something that I've been doing for a while, where even before the implementation plan, keeping an eye on the number of health visitors in England. Mm. Uh, And what I've done quite often is produce graphs, uh, which way back when we just shared with members Mm. uh, via things like our journal. Uh, But more recently now, with the wonder of social media, uh, can share them on a monthly basis via Twitter. I think I remember the first time I saw you was when I was at uni doing my health visiting and you and Ros came and spoke to us. And I think you showed us the graph then about where we we had been, where we were with the implementation plan, and there was all question marks as to where that would be afterwards. So one of the things that I was really keen to do throughout the implementation plan was to remind people about why the implementation plan was necessary. Uh, For those uh, student health visitors that came in kind of 2012, 2013, it was this real kind of worry that they would get sold this story that we would soon have so many health visitors that we wouldn't need uh, parents anymore. Yeah, I saw that line in the article and I thought, gosh, what a strange kind of where on earth did that idea come from and, and it was kind of this thing about you know this view that we would have these 4,200 more health visitors yeah and we would be kind of awash with health visitors yeah. but actually what we have to and... well we have to remember back to kind of 2010 the situation that we faced where there'd been this massive decline in the number of health visitors mm. and at the same point we'd seen a massive increase in the number of under fives in in England and so both was we're creating this sort of perfect storm that we would kind of face a cliff edge that we needed to kind of correct and because I suppose as well I mean nursing anywhere I think even since when I first qualified a number of years ago (laughs) I'm looking thinking I'm realizing I'm the longest qualified of both of you (laughs) and um, but it's always been an older profession there's always been this fear over so many of them being older and I think especially in health visiting with it being a route that often people go into having done a bit of hospital nursing beforehand the demographic is older I know where I am now there's probably similar amount of people who have retired as to how many have just moved on to other yeah Yeah. out of London or other places well I'm obviously really new into kind of health visiting fairly still fairly newly qualified and um went straight into health visiting and always planned to go straight into health visiting so um 
and like you say I always thought that I would probably be in the minority but actually on the course I found there were loads of in fact the vast majority yeah. of people were in a similar kind of boat to me maybe they'd done a year on the wards or they'd done a year or two on the wards but they're fairly new to nursing generally and then when I got into a role I've always found it's been fairly balanced I don't know if that's a change it has changed so Mm. if you looked at the data and and I did this kind of uh, in 2011 12 and 13 yeah and what you saw was that the number of people of the older age range, older age ranges was going up because mm. we all get older. Yeah. But <laughs> makes the, sense. The, the kind of proportion was was slowly coming down, okay. uh, and obviously that would be kind of a positive in terms of any profession. Yes. Yeah, sure. the, the health visiting curve is further over to the right when you look at it in terms of terms of age profile because yeah. of people entering it, but the implementation plan kind of flattened that a little bit okay and that obviously is a positive thing in terms of professions kind of future yeah it's interesting for me because I did the direct entry route into health visiting where it was three years nursing and then the fourth year health visiting so I kind of was always a young health visitor Mm. uh, which you know was unusual in some ways at the time but less so with the implementation I didn't know you'd done that it's really similar to what I did yeah so I did a I did nursing and then straight Straight into health visiting not it wasn't a direct entry course but it was a separate two separate courses yeah yeah. Yeah. and it's kind of you couldn't really call it direct entry because you know that then had different connotations but it was a four-year course yeah it was yeah being a a, a registered health well a registered specialist community public health nurse so it you know it's, it's kind of it this work has come out of kind of quite a lot of those interesting bits about the the workforce and 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 what we saw happening uh, and obviously between the period of 2011 when the implementation plan was launched mm. and 2015 when the implementation plan finished mm. we did see this dramatic increase in the number of health visitors and at the time i think everyone kind of knew something would happen after yes. the march and then the october 2015 uh, and I think most people ex- expected it to go down. Yeah. But I think what's been quite shocking is the the speed with which that yeah. has gone Quickly, down. Yeah. And that's where this kind of piece of work came from because the repeated kind of warnings in terms of what's happening in the NHS. One of the arguments back is, well, what's happening for those employers that aren't in the NHS? Mm. And the workforce picture for health visiting has become a little bit more confused mm. because of the kind of the different employers that now employ health visiting. I see. So the data that we've got is mostly about health visitors that are employed by NHS organisations, whereas you're saying there's lots of places that now use other types of organisations. So they, they commission the health visiting services through different. Yeah. So NHS digital information now is just about. NHS employers. Yeah. So the electronic staff record uh, records everyone that works in an NHS employer. Yeah. What happened during the implementation plan was NHS Digital was given the task to create a more expansive data set, uh, and that was called the HVMDS. Uh, that ran until I think it was September 2015, and that did record everyone that worked mm. as a health visitor in England, irrespective okay. of employer. Great. But they got rid of that oh. at the end of the plan. <laughs> And that is one of the problems that we now face. So the first bit of this work was to kind of try and say who employs all the health visitors in England. Yes. And launching it on social media and kind of saying to fellow health visitors who employs you. Yeah. 
uh, hoping that health visitors would know that information. And it's interesting because some people kind of haven't tracked who employs them, mm. uh, but most obviously kind of do know yeah. where the paycheck used, comes from. Yeah, you used that find the HV, didn't you? Yes. Hashtag, which I remember. So that kind of showed everywhere. that of all the different local authorities, 123 were NHS employers, okay. uh, 13 were either social enterprise or community interest companies. 10 were local authorities, so councils. Uh, there were five organisations covered by private companies, but that was made up of two different private companies uh, because one of them has four different areas at the moment, although they're set to lose one of them possibly, uh, and one GP federation. Uh, so that's kind of the breakdown in okay, England yeah. as of when I found the information out in April. Okay, so that's quite interesting. And I suppose, I mean, I don't, I guess we're getting a little bit off topic from your thing, but I don't suppose you have any kind of insights as to what differences that means, because it must be quite a different, or maybe it isn't a different experience working for an NHS organisation versus working for a local authority workers yeah. versus working for a private company. I suppose... I, get, I know that wasn't really what you no, covered no, and, in your... No, and, and, and no, and, and I suppose one of the things was, though, to kind of have somewhere a list of what the picture What's was in England happening? because yeah. we kind of knew that some regions were less likely to have NHS employers mm-hmm. so for example I come from the northwest region and every local authority in the northwest is covered by an NHS employer we have no kind of diversity of employment yeah. up okay. there whereas when you look into places like the southwest mm-hmm. the picture is much more mixed yeah or, I think whenever and, whenever we think about sort of other organisations running it, it always seems to be the Southwest. I know in like the Facebook groups, the health and things, mm. it's always those it's in, the in the Southwest who yeah. seem to be being run by the private companies. And I think what's interesting just in this piece of work and, and maybe jumping a little bit to asking organisations how many health visitors they employ, mm. I didn't need to ask NHS organisations because NHS Digital provides that information. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I asked the 10 councils and I could ask for that information using freedom of information yeah. request. Yeah. So there's a legal requirement that they provide that information mm. back and there's strict time scales in terms Absolutely. of how they should do that. Yeah. What was interesting was two of the councils actually failed to reply within the yeah, strict time I scales. Saw that, yeah. And when I followed it up, they kind of said, oh, we lost your inquiry. <laughs> And it would be interesting to know how often those councils lose inquiries mm. because, you know, I appreciate that councils are under huge pressure with the cuts that they yeah. face from central government. That actually, you know, I imagine that's one area that is really hard to respond to, to freedom of information requests. Sure. I also asked the social enterprises, but not using freedom of information requests. Because obviously there isn't a way to do that. No. Because they're not a... A statutory public statutory body, public, so yeah. there's, there's no l- sort of law that says that they have to provide the information. Mm. Off off my memory, I think six or seven responded to the the request and they yeah. provided that information. There was three that wrote back and said, actually, we're not going to provide that information and we don't have to because we don't have to conform to freedom yes. of information requests. Yeah. Uh, and then, interestingly, in terms of the two private companies they didn't reply to the contacts that I sent them and actually what was interesting in terms of one of them was actually it was really difficult to find anywhere to address a a question so you kind of look at their website and they have uh, you know the forms that you have to fill in so you have to pick which department you want to go through right and I think one of the times I was had to go through the kind of uh 
innovation improvement department to try and ask, uh, but I didn't get anything back. So again, kind of sometimes it was resorting to the good old Twitter and tweeting them to say, you know, can you give me an idea on who to contact? It's amazing how you do end up resorting to Twitter just because also there's then an, almost like a paper trail, an audit trail of, yeah. well, I've asked this of you. Mm. Well, <laughs> but I suppose it's what's really interesting to me about that is not only that people just chose to ignore your question completely, um, but I suppose the more important point is that they actually could do that. You yeah. know, because you're not a public body and you're not an NHS organisation, there's no accountability in that way. Yeah. And maybe that speaks to something that's quite important about having those services managed by bodies that aren't public I don't know I'm asking maybe it is and and I think you know that this has all gone into a response that I've sent into the health select committee because they're currently doing an investigation into the first thousand critical days unfortunately they've picked a thousand days when other people pick a thousand and one yeah why is it a thousand days it feels like they're reinventing the wheel a bit isn't it well I think it's going to be a hugely helpful reinvention of the Mm. wheel and I think one of the reasons why the committee's decided to do the investigation uh, is because of the uh, government's uh, green paper on children's mental, mental health. health yeah. Because uh, on a number of occasions, the responsible minister has stated that the children's green paper for mental health doesn't apply to the under fives. And it's that kind of bit about... Well, I mean, it, it doesn't really, when you read it. Well, yeah. <laughs> it doesn't really. Absolutely. But, I mean, sh- there's a, definitely an argument yeah. that it certainly should. And, that, and that's the bit about... And why doesn't it? You know, in, in yeah. terms of the Unite response, I think we've got 21 pages that, that kind of went across all the issues. One yeah. of the key things was about the complete lack Absence. of focus yeah. on the under fives, yeah. which is pretty surprising when you look at the... You know, not just the building evidence, but the evidence already in place yeah. that shows yeah, 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 if yeah. you intervene early, you save so much time, yeah. effort, and improve quality of life. That it's just it is weird, it's and mad, I think yeah. that is I think that's one of the reasons why the health select committee is absolutely spot on in terms of doing this inquiry. And I think what it will also hopefully do is focus on services like health visiting mm. because of the kind of really. Uh, negative impacts that some of the government policies have had on the profession mm. and hopefully we'll kind of have another way of getting that that sort of the, the problem out there mm. uh, and so again that kind of bit about why looking at one of the recommendations that I've made in my response uh, is to say that if any public service uh, is delivered by a non-public body they yeah. should have the requirement yeah, absolutely. to provide responses to requests for information yeah. Yeah. and again you know i wrote these requests you know not in my kind of Day role job. as a health visitor or in my role as a prof- lead professional officer for unite but just in terms of saying i'm a human being that wants to find this information mm. out and i'm going to share this mm. with the you know the world mm. because i think it's important that people can look at this information yeah the information needs to be out there somewhere and it currently isn't so yeah. you know you volunteer in your spare time to, yeah. and I th- to I put think it together to, which is to be fair to give credit to those non-nhs non public bodies that did Did reply reply. that they were willing to share the information Mm. and for those that didn't what are they trying to hide you know and there's this argument about you know is it sensitive in terms of business procurement that they don't tell the public how many people they're employing 
Well, if that is true, then again, that's pretty shocking argument yeah. behind it. Yeah, quite worrying in itself, that yeah. really, if that I is the argument. I feel like they're going to turn around and say it's commercially sensitive yes. or something. Yeah, so yeah, that's what, that yeah. kind yeah. of territory. And what's, what's interesting as well is Public Health England, who, you know, at times I would argue have been relatively toothless about this stuff, <laughs> they have produced a very good guidance document that says that organisations should talk about caseload sizes yeah but again it just shows the toothlessness of this guidance well saying should. that yeah. people aren't conforming to do it they don't so have to. it's not good enough mm. people organizations should yeah that they, they have they should have to they, yeah. they should be yeah that like you say a legislative thing rather yeah. than a like we, we think it's a good idea for you to do this yeah and again you're going to do it or not w- w- one of the reasons that this kind of you know i, I had time to look at these issues uh, was when I uh, was on paternity leave with my third child mm. uh, that actually what was fascinating for me was my family didn't get the antenatal appointment. Okay. Yeah. So I wrote a letter to the chief exec at the trust that employs the health visitors locally to ask why not. Okay. Uh, and again, the response that I got was along the lines of, well, because someone kind of made an assessment that you should kind of be okay because yeah. it's your third child. <laughs> we just therefore... assumed you're universal. Yeah, so yeah. We so thought we wouldn't bother. We, we looked you up on Twitter. Well, <laughs> and looked like you knew what you were talking about. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and again, I would kind of hope that actually, if anyone did look up me up on Twitter, they'd realise that I'm never at home. <laughs> that actually, you know, there are there are real reasons why my family should have the mandated visits as much as any other family well they're universal contacts it's not just about we can't pick and choose which families receive antenatal contact and antenatal contact is a universal mandated contact every family should be offered it Mm -hmm. yeah and yet my regardless it's not a case of targeting contacts to who needs them the most yeah and you know, you're getting into this is supposed to be universal service. Yeah, mm. and but it's not. Mm, no. And again, that kind of bit about the the rationale why it wasn't was because the argument that they'd had more uh, referrals locally around uh, child protection issues, uh, and therefore they had to target who got uh, an antenatal visit, and my family was deemed not to require one. And again, you know, I know many people that'll be in the, that same situation yeah. who won't write a letter of complaint. Uh, of course and obviously I'm not one of them because I did no but I mean you know I think the point is that a lot of people wouldn't even know that they no. that they're entitled to no. one um, or wouldn't even know what the value of taking that up would be yeah. or necessarily really know what health visitors are or what we do yeah. so yeah that's why it's really important to have people raising the profile of yeah. the profession and pointing out actually where these things are slipping when yeah. they should be and and again, you know, in my own practice, kind of knowing that the antenatal visit was always the first visit to get dropped, yeah. and yet it was the visit the that people found visits. they got the most information yeah. from. Yeah. And again, that kind of bit about being able to meet a family before one of the most life-changing things yeah. you can do, yeah. uh, just to get a sense, but also just to be a reasonable, polite person to say, this is me yeah, and this is yeah. what I can do for you yeah. and hello and I think again yeah, yeah. a lot of the times that I've speak to uh, MPs and ministers about this kind of saying how many times would they expect usually the men mm-hmm. uh, how many times would they expect me to meet their partner before that person would be willing to talk about things like their own you know, abuse as a child, mm. uh, to talk about domestic violence, to talk about issues where actually they're really complicated and 
often at times personal distressing issues and I would kind of argue that any reasonable person would want to meet me more than once and more than for 15 minutes to be able to form that kind of professional bond with them and and again you know another reason why I think this works so important that we Mm. can kind of push back on that kind of view of that, that it's unreasonable to have a good quality service because it costs money. And it's so true, you know, it rings so true what you're saying. You know, I've definitely been in services where, well, every service I've ever been in, there's been stages where we haven't managed to achieve a universal antenatal. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't I think I don't think there's many services that could say they always achieve universal antenatal. Yeah. Um, and you're right, it is one of the most important contacts. Yeah. And, yeah. and there's an element of, well, we have to because, you know, this is where yeah. we're at and this yeah. is where the cuts are and well, I think we have to deliver well a service. Because they're under the midwives at the same time, isn't it? So oh, they'll be fine but they're doing a different role exactly and and, and again there's that bit about that was part of the point of the implementation plan it was to start saying that it wasn't just about crisis it was about pulling up the river to you know look at why people were falling in and drowning Mm. and it's that kind of bit about it's such a good opportunity to talk about things like early attachment and bonding to talk about breastfeeding in a positive and a kind of a building way you know to drop all these messages in in quite a kind of a a skilled way to make parents think about something that maybe they've not thought about before and again you know thinking about my own experience as a parent and obviously you know I, I wouldn't say that my experience matches many people's out there as a male health visitor, but, you know, kind of experiencing the lack of discussion about things like breastfeeding yeah. for all three of our children, the lack of discussion about uh, parental relationship, uh, the lack of kind of discussion about how earth-shatteringly massive having a baby is, yeah. how exhausting it can be, mm. and kind of thinking about these really big issues at a time when people actually might be able to think about things and mm. develop mm. the way that they might respond. Mm. And kind of knowing myself that someone that's done all the kind of the, the academic you know, learning and also meeting thousands of parents that have had children, knowing how exhausting it is to be a parent myself, you know, and and again, I I wouldn't often want to talk about my own experience to match with other parents, but to kind of think about if it's exhausting and tiring and and makes a difference to my life than to someone that doesn't know all this stuff. Yeah, yeah. sure. What impact that that would have. And that's and actually that's an, that's an important perspective when we're talking about the universality of the service and how important that universality is. Because even somebody who's actually on the surface, yeah, he doesn't need an antenatal visit. You know, he's fine. He's got yeah. two kids already. He's got this covered. You know, no concerns. Yeah. Everything's fine. Actually, no, no, that visit is still really valuable, yeah. and it is a universal visit for a reason. And I think one of the one of the reasons why I'm quite keen to try and make sure that we get as good coverage as possible of the five mandated contacts which all families should get mm. is knowing the families that I work with who sometimes cause me the most concern weren't always the families that people would kind of say on the face of it should cause concern no, so sure. just thinking about some of the families you know that have two parents that appear to be in a stable relationship that appear to have you know good jobs that appear to be you yeah. know successful in everything that they do 
actually when you scratch that surface there can be quite deep intractable problems mm. that required lots and lots of support to to, to kind of mm. uh, you know to make to help as much as possible for them to be the best parents that they could be mm. and you know I, I felt quite lucky I you know I often meet health visitors say I work in the poorest area in the country mm. you know I've been a health visitor for some of the least poor areas of the yeah. country yeah. But actually witnessing the service that those parents desperately need to make sure that their attachment with their children can be improved when it can be really poor. Yeah, I mean, with things like, you know, problems in that postnatal period, and I know sort of similar to you, I've worked in a very affluent area, and you kind of always... And it was interesting to look at the comments on the Guardian site on your article... And there were so many kind of someone who had yeah, had her baby in Australia thirty odd years ago, and she'd never had anything like a health visitor. And are we molly coddling parents? And it's mm. like, well, no, we're not. And I was want to, yeah, it's that thing we all fall right back to them and go, well, okay, but who who did give you that reassurance you were doing an okay job of it, or who was your go to person when you did feel really stressed out? Because mm. I bet there would have been someone that she maybe went to, mm. or that it turned out she had an awful time of it. But I mean, it's like, yeah, we've had parents who, yeah, having that transition from being, you know, from having a career into being a stay-at-home mum, even if it's only for six months or so, or problems with the delivery where they end up in hospital for yeah. a week afterwards and things go awry there. And I mean, that is one of the big ones where it can cause such a problem with that initial course, attachment yeah. and bonding. And they come out of hospital really not trusting their own instincts mm. and so having that chance to sort of have that input as well, but even, you know, beforehand yeah. and, as well. And, and, and that's the whole bit about, you know, the previous arguments about progressive universalism the kind of bit about yes it should be a service that is tiered towards the families that need it most yes but to be able to tier it in a way that, that is, is appropriate yeah. then health visitors need to be able to make relationships with families with everyone so they can respond and they yeah. can work in that way that's exactly what I was about to say um, because you do need to spend more time with more vulnerable families yes absolutely but how do you identify who's more vulnerable we identify them by seeing everybody yeah. and if we lose the universality of the service then we're losing something really fundamental I think yeah. so that's why this work you've been doing and, is really important and just as an example when I first started my practice in Salford the birthplace of health visiting mm. uh, I took over a caseload from someone that had been the uh, person that had led on uh, domestic abuse kind of services for health visitors in mm. that area. Uh, and it could have been quite easy for me to kind of say, well, I'm not going to do that because I'm a bloke and that's that's not appropriate for me. But actually kind of say, no, that's something mm. that I do want to look at mm. and develop. And it was fascinating to meet mums early on, you know, antenatally or just after delivery and kind of say, you know, at the time it was kind of the, I think the home office were encouraging that we ask mums about uh, had they had experiences of d- domestic violence and kind of asking that question and 99 times out of 100 get the answer no no absolutely nothing everything's fine and then those after a few weeks coming back to me and saying yes. do you remember that you asked me that question yeah I didn't want to answer yes at that point because I never met you before I didn't mm. know who you were from yeah. anyone else in mm. the world but actually because I've met you a few times now, I know that I can now talk to you mm. about this issue. Mm. And actually then supporting those people, you know, at times to, you know, make plans to, to leave the family mm. and, and, and to get away, that 
again, that kind of wouldn't happen if people don't have those relationships. It would happen in some, you know, there are some times when people will share, you know, really significant issues to someone that they've just met just because of, say, the NHS badge. But actually, we shouldn't expect people to have to do that. No. We should have be able to kind of create an environment where they believe that you're someone that can share that. And obviously, we're kind of going on quite a strong tangent away now from the work. Sorry, yeah. I'm good at leading <laughs> tangents, apparently. Um, so but yeah, there, getting back to, yeah. Is there anything more that you want? Or sort of has, has there been much impact from the article and when, well, where are you going next so with it? Obviously the what ca- did you find, I suppose? Yeah. So, so the next bit after finding out where everyone was employed... Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. We've yeah. been <laughs> kind of... Tracing uh, ahead. Yeah, doing doing a, a bigger piece of, sort of data capture. So all the NHS employers say who they employ, so I could find out health visitors for all of those. Yeah, great. For the local authorities and for the social enterprises that replied I could then note how many health visitors they employed then the local government association has been quite helpful Mm -hmm. uh, and they have a tool on their website where you can actually find out the number of children under five for every local authority Uh, I saw that in your room so yeah so then you can come up with a magic figure of how many children under five there are per health visitor now I've been keen to kind of stress all the way through this that it is not kind of you know this data is not a kind of a hundred percent accuracy, and in some ways the kind of the first iteration of this is probably going to be less accurate than hopefully it will become later on. Yeah. And just as an example, in the Observer piece, the organisation that was heralded as the best in the country was Brighton and Hove. Yeah. Who their stats came out as seventy three children under five per health visitor. Yeah, I saw that and I was like, how? <laughs> well, how was because I didn't pick up that Brighton and Hove health visitors are employed by Sussex Community NHS Foundation Trust. Okay. And what I didn't pick up was they also employ the health visitors for West Sussex. Right. So oh. their total should have been divided across, across the children for both. So Brighton Hove did have 73 and West Sussex did have 244, both under the figure of 250 children that I've quoted a few times. They've now both been relegated to 316.81 okay. children. <laughs> Bad per news, Brighton and Hove. Yeah. Sorry yes. about that. That still sounds quite nice. The <laughs> Brighton and Hove health visitors must be thinking, yeah, okay, thank you, because 74 definitely wasn't right. <laughs> so that is exactly the point that Brighton and Hove uh, health visitors, one of them contacted me and said, did you put well this into the working out? And no, I didn't. Hands up bad Dave Uh, (laughs) it has now been done and again what I would encourage any listener once they rush over to look at the uh, spreadsheet which is going to be linked on the podcast notes if they feel that I have uh, not got the right figure then tell me that you think that and try and give me a sense of why not Mm -hmm. and in a way this piece of work will be updated for those bits in terms of trying to make sure we've got the right stats One I think it's really useful to have it as I mean like you say it's a starting point yes. and if yeah. you put it out there and there's people reading you know because oh, everybody's going to be really curious to see what theirs is because I know in my last trust as well they wouldn't tell us what our caseload size was as health no. visitors no. we kept asking and they wouldn't yeah. tell us yeah. um, and, and you know so I think everybody's going to be wanting to look this up yeah the, the other problem with the stats and 
uh, as I said before, I've given a, uh, I've, I've done a submission to the Health Select Committee, which I've not published yet because you're not supposed to publish your responses yeah, yeah. until the committee publishes mm. them. Uh, but I've given an example of uh, Manchester. Yes, I thought that was really interesting. So the example for Manchester University NHS Foundation Trust is that their overall figures show a caseload size of 256 children per health visitor. But that's when you include the band 6s, the band 7s and the band 8as. If you take the band 8as away, their caseload increases to 271. And if you take the band 7s away as well, so just leaving band 6 health visitors, their caseload increases to 367. Okay. So, so that's the, probably a more realistic figure because your band 7s and 8s, from my practice experience, generally don't hold a caseload. Mm-hmm. Your band 7s, perhaps your team leaders or whatever, might occasionally go out and do a clinic or do a new birth and maybe do some help like when people are really short. But... They're not generally holding their own caseload. No. And the other thing is, it, these figures will include people like uh, family nurses. Okay. So there aren't as many family nurse partnerships in England as there used to be, but there still are some. Uh, they will also be in right. the numbers. And obviously their caseload won't be more than 25 children per no. health visitor. So even kind of... And, and that's one of the things that I might do in a future iteration is to strip out all the non-band sixes and and just put the band sixes down uh, which might make it more accurate but again might not I'm just noticing interestingly because my trust covers several areas and just having a peek and uh, I I thought oh that looks quite a nice number and then realised it's spread out across all the boroughs that they work with that's the other thing it it will be different I suppose I suppose it's about how do you how much of a granular level do you take the data down to? But I suppose yeah. from your perspective, what you're wanting to achieve is a national picture yeah. of actually generally yeah. nationally how are we doing? Yes. Um, and you know if you take 250 as the standard um, that we say should be the ceiling for caseload size yeah. in the UK, we're supposed to have less than 250, and that's a number that's kind of come from I know the CPHVA and also um, Institute of Health Visiting have kind of they support that fi- Supported figure that as well, figure. Yeah. So we, although obviously it's different and different cases, you might have a caseload of 250 that's really, really heavy and another one that's not so much. So there's going to be differences. But to, just to give us a number, to get to have us a number. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I think, again, that kind of bit about what often happens is people will argue about the kind of the primacy of the 250 figure and, mm-hmm. you know, the kind of mm-hmm. evidence behind it. But they'll argue that point while they're sitting on caseloads of 500 or yeah. 600 or 700. Yeah. And actually, the argument back I would put is, well, where's your evidence to show that, your that number is 700 is, is a safe it's and effective fire. service? Yeah. And the 250 figure that we've got is based on more kind of professional uh, insight and uh, work than mm. lots of other organisations sure. that yeah. is. Getting back to that bit about the complexity, like you say, I've just picked an example of uh, North East London NHS Foundation Trust, that they provide services to Barking and Dagenham, Havering, Redbridge, Thurrock and Waltham Forest. So their figure of 496 children per health visitor uh, is an average across those those uh, five different boroughs. Uh, So it might be that X borough 
has yeah. 200 yeah. and another has 1,000, but, but they're offset yeah. against each yeah. other. But then that key point is that even that, and even as an average, is still way, way over... Yeah. Yes, exactly. That's what I was trying to get to. Is you're trying to get this? We're sort of trying to get ever more accurate with the data and get this ever more granular level of detail. But actually, what we're trying to achieve, broadly speaking, is to say, well, in general, how yeah. are we doing in yeah. comparison? So if I was to ask you, okay, the level is 250. How are we doing nationally at achieving 250? Yeah. And I've got a bit of a smile on my face because I'm imagining. Well, I've looked at the yeah, thing. So, and not great. Is uh, I think. <laughs> Off the, uh, the 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 stuff that I was quoted in the Observer was that there were eighteen organisations that yeah. had average caseloads below the two hundred and fifty maximum, and obviously 18. we Out now, of how many? Uh, I think it's well, there's one hundred and fifty two organisations. I think, but not all of them provided figures. Yeah. Uh, so there's there was eighteen, but obviously since the Observer article, we now know. That Brighton and Hove oh, and West less. Sussex have <laughs> yeah. been relegated oh, below, <laughs> so there are sixteen. Oh, wow. uh, what was interesting as well was that whilst there was eighteen with less, now sixteen, there's actually eighteen with at least double the two fifty, so at five hundred plus. Yeah. Uh, and again, they're averages, not maximums. So uh, it just kind of gives you oh, a sense. Yeah, of course. So that doesn't necessarily mean. Like there could be so even if your average is five hundred, there could be individual health visitors practicing with caseloads of higher than that. Because yes. yeah. this is your average. And and that brings. Oh God, I hadn't even had that moment well, of realization. And, and, and that kind of one one of the reasons that I did this piece of work uh, is because of a piece of work that was done in I think it was two thousand and nine. Uh, by an organisation that was in existence then called the Family and Parenting Institute. Mm. And again, when I went across England talking to university students who were doing the health visitor course, I was showing them this uh, document, uh, Health Visitors and, and Endangered Species. And what they did at the time was they did freedom of information requests to all the primary care trusts in England, because that's right. the organisations that, that yeah. we had them, at the yeah. time. And they did a rank of all the different health visitor caseload sizes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was sober reading, uh, because in some organisations it absolutely was massive. But one of the interesting things for me was uh, supporting members at Unite at the time in health visiting. I would get calls from health visitors saying, well, my organisation says that average caseloads are x mm. but my caseload is y mm. and i remember uh, at the time uh, getting a phone call from a health visitor in birmingham who was saying that their caseload at that time was over 2000 children per oh health visitor for their locality uh, and again that kind of bit about this doesn't show the extreme kind it's of averages. problems yeah. it shows an average and what I hope organisations can do, or people in organisations can look at it, and they can interpret how they sit nationally, but also they can look at where their data might be wrong, yeah. and they can start challenging. Yeah. Because again, you know, one of the arguments that I put in the uh, response to the Health Select Committee is that it shouldn't be down to a health visitor from Greater Manchester no. kind of doing this in the evening. Uh, whilst no. you know yeah. I should yeah, be watching something on Netflix you know it should be <laughs> down to uh, a, a kind of a national of course uh, it data yeah. you know system to create this information yeah. of course it should. Uh, and, and it just digital would be my preference for doing that uh, but 
this is the best that we've got. And you've moment. done, yeah. I mean, it's a fantastic piece of work. I think we would all say that really valuable, really useful. Yeah. And and just, I mean, the, the thing that's kind of springing out to me is, although you're saying it doesn't it doesn't capture the extremes like you're saying 2000 i mean i can't even imagine that but i mean even even 500 i'm saying 500 like that's fine you know it's, yeah, it's not yeah. you know and i think i've had a few um friends uh, relatives people have asked me in the past like how many children do you actually have you know yeah. that you look after and I had a GP ask me that same thing once um, and you know and I think people and um, professionals have asked me other yeah. professionals social worker asked me once and I think they're thinking from their own perspective mm-hmm. like yeah, I have yeah. maybe 20 yeah. active cases at the minute or I have you know yeah. 30 or 40 yeah. and when you say to them well the net recommended national average is 250 yeah. their faces yeah. you know and then you say well I'm currently working at 700 or I'm currently working at yeah. 500 yeah. they look at you like and I think sometimes we because we think about it in, on such an academic level and we're so familiar with these numbers we're bandying them around yeah. Yeah. we actually forget to imagine like you know if you were to imagine a room full of 700 children yeah. under five yeah. what would that look like yeah. Yeah. it's an absolutely huge volume yeah. of children yeah. isn't yeah. it and then you imagine the that's day. one person yeah. one person yeah. Yeah. is responsible well, it's for, for that lot of teams, that's I mean, ridiculous I'm sure, I'm sure I'm not alone in having it so you, where you work always corporately yeah yes. so yeah. you share out the universal context but you have your your universal plus and your universal kind of but your time at the point the point with this is the time isn't yeah. it yeah. so the work the the amount of work if you like yeah. doesn't change but I think whether you work corporately up, because or you're um, working corporately on universal level you almost don't realize how many kids you've got on that universal yeah. level. it's easy to miss and it so you have mm-hmm. your case though and you kind of think god why am i yeah, feeling why so am frazzled. i feeling so frazzled yeah. i've only got 30 and then you kind of that you don't even think about the fact that you've got all those kids that you're yeah. responsible for who you are seeing clinic and the new birth visits yeah. and things. And, and again, it, it kind of comes back to the... You, one of the fascinating things is the bit about kind of people saying, well, to ever get down to 250, it would be impossible. Mm. But that's why CPHVA argued in 2009 mm. that we needed 4,200 more health visitors yeah. to get to caseloads of 250. Mm. And actually, that was adopted, that was government mm, policy. Yeah. For four years, we had a situation where it was, we needed 4,200 more health visitors. Let's uh, train them. Yeah, and, and what was fascinating for me was during the implementation plan we were making the same kind of arguments about school nurses and the need to vastly increase the number of school nurses that we've got and the kind of response that we got at the time was well that's hilarious we can't get that many more school nurses because that's just too many Mm. and it's like but that's the exact same thing that people said in 2009 when we yeah. were saying we needed 4,200 yeah. more health visitors, people were kind of laughing and saying that would never happen. And, that's, and it did. That's Yeah, and that's a familiar reaction, I think. You know, sitting as a practitioner who sat in team meetings where I've been saying, you know, this is dangerous, we've yeah. got too many children and not enough staff. Ultimately, I'm prioritising priorities, yeah. you know. Um, I think that is often the answer is, well, that's what you've got to do because yeah. mm-hmm. we've been cut and this is the funding we've got available, so you've got to do it. Yeah. And I think sometimes, actually, 
that can become the line that you swallow yeah. without really realising you're swallowing it. Yeah. And actually, it takes work like this to make you stand up and go, no, hang on a minute. Yeah. Yeah. Hang on a minute. And, and, and again, <laughs> the, there is that kind of bit about where the lines are drawn and mm. where people aren't pushed beyond. Mm. Uh, and what is interesting at the moment, if people may have seen the uh, press releases that Unite have done about Birmingham mm. and about yes. the situation there... And I think it will be fascinating to see yet another CQC report come out Mm. and to talk about 250 children per health visitor caseload and actually kind of, you know, what was happening in Birmingham, you know, at the time. Uh, And obviously the report, as we speak today, hasn't been published yet, but I'm looking forward to being able to read it once it is to kind of try and see what lessons other organisations in England should learn and I think they need to learn them quite quickly yeah because again remembering where we came from to get to the implementation plan the kind of the you know I don't know if mood music's the the wrong phrase to use but you know the kind of situations that we were campaigning against with uh, the 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 death of Victoria Climbier, the mm. death of Peter Connolly. Mm. That actually, you know, these situations where we need to have services in place yeah. in areas to keep children safe mm. as a kind of a baseline. Mm. But then we have to go beyond that. We mm. have to provide a service that actually improves children's lives. Yeah. And again, we had a time when government you know the prime minister recognized that hmm. we've got a shadow secretary of state now that recognizes that yeah. we've got you know a team in labor that seem to be very much understanding the importance of early intervention what is unfortunate is that we don't have that same no. understanding in government at the moment and even from those who were quite loud voices i mean it still riles me that you know we went to that thousand and one critical days appg yeah and tim loughton was there saying about how yeah, you're just pushing against an open door for funding, and I, I remember Push, talking, oh my god, yeah, really? oh yeah, no, oh yeah, <laughs> and I spoke to him afterwards and oh, bent wow. his ear and said, look, there is so much worry. And I said, and we've yeah. got all these health visitors coming through who are newly qualified, who, yeah, we're looking Aren't at, the we're looking at, no, and we're looking at budget cuts, and they are just then newly qualified. They've not been nursing for long. They are just going to just take Leave. the route of least resistance and go for are. something else. Yeah. yeah. And and I think again, it's 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 a it's if you kind of anyone that knows me and follows me on Twitter will know that I am highly interested in politics, and I'll argue that the reason that I am interested in politics is because of the principle of health visiting that talks about the importance of politics in health, mm. and kind of you know looking at the what the situation that we've had where we've got very powerful people in the Conservative government that know about this stuff and talk about their kind of uh, promotion at the highest level. You know, Andrea Ledson is a great example who has been really passionate and interested in the first 1001 critical days and is a cabinet minister. Uh, so should be able to make sure this stuff gets into legislation. But then she's not been put in cabinet in children and families. She's Well, and and I I, I suppose that that kind of is... I don't get too stressed about that completely because I think you know all cabinet it's better to have a cross section of cabinet that are interested in these issues Yeah. yeah so you know she should have a position of power and yet it seems that all she's managed to get out of all of this process 
is a task force that will look at this issue. Mm. And it's that kind of bit about my preference would have been a big section in the children... children's mental health green paper that talked about investment a reinvestment in health and in our response we talked about a recommitment to the health visitor implementation plan target figures yeah an increase in the mandated visits yeah Uh, you know if you look at scotland as an example where they've got 11 mandated visits versus r5 just a piece of work that we'll hopefully do at some point along these figures is looking at the uh the 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 rates of mandated mm. contacts for health visitors across England and looking at I think one of the organizations responded to say that they only did I think it was two percent of one of the checks uh, yeah. and yet what God. kind of you know what push have they had to say this isn't good enough yeah. that it should be 98 percent not two percent mm, yeah and actually, there's an argument as well on the ground for those health visitors where, because I've been in teams where it's been a case of, well, we're, we're continually, you know, killing ourselves almost to meet these targets that we've got to meet for the KPIs. And you're almost at the point where you're on the floor under the table desperately trying to meet the KPI. But actually, then you think, well, hang on, if I carry on doing this, nothing will ever change. Yeah. Because actually what's happening is they're stripping the resources yeah. and squashing and squashing and squashing. And I'm continuing to manage somehow by scraping, you know, by staying late, by yeah. not by yeah. by doing all the things I shouldn't have to do yeah, to meet the thing. And, and you sort of hope that when your figures drop, that will then be the prod that is needed to say, yeah. well, actually, yeah. but then well, the obviously the didn't, did it? Works you know, at the that's what needs to happen. Is that if you KPI, yeah, if you drop below your KPIs, the you threat. have financial told punishment, off. and so you have yeah. even less people try and make yeah. go yeah, further. It's which a slap is on the wrist rather than a ludicrous mm. way of working. And I suppose you know what what kind of response does this require? I think one of the things that individuals should do is band together, and you know the kind of bit about what we had to do before the implementation plan was launched in two thousand and eleven and kind of say, well, actually, you know, as a group of health visitors in X organisation, we need to start putting pressure on these organisations to Mm. do something about this. You know, we need to push them into a situation where it's uncomfortable to make these decisions. And again, you know, it's I I always remember the kind of conversations that I had pre-health visitor implementation plan, you know, health visitors saying, oh, I don't want to rock the boat. But that kind of bit yeah, about, well, actually, yeah. if there's a dirty great hole in the boat and it's sinking, yeah. then a bit of rocking isn't going to kind of make that worse or better. The other thing that has came out, and again, having arguments with senior managers, was kind of saying that if you as individuals raise concerns about the service that we deliver locally, mm. we won't be commissioned to do it again, mm. and therefore you'll all possibly be out of a job at the end yeah. of this. Mm. And again, the kind of bit about you just look at the the problems in those statements, you know, how, you know, as registrants with the NMC, you know, duty bound to ensure that services are safe for families, Mm. being warned off from doing that because of a threat that if you do, you'll lose your job. Yeah. You know, I don't know a better example of bullying than that. No, yeah. It's absolute crystal clear stuff. And again, sadly the threats are real yeah and sadly yeah. when you raise those threats with people in power their kind of response can be mm. quite 
limited. Mm. Uh, and again, you know, Jeremy Hunt, as a past uh, Secretary of State, mm. kind of being very keen about talking about people being open and honest, and yet at times being a bully to people oh, yeah, who raise concerns. It is that thing it's, where it comes from much higher up, and I think those who we might immediately accuse bullied are being bullied themselves. Yeah. And yeah, it sure. is that thing where with every spate of recommissioning, it's they're trying to find who can do it for even less money. Mm. And still it's being squeezed. It's it, there's that bit about people not wanting to rock the boat, and and you know, and then something you said as well about forcing people to be in in position where they're having to make uncomfortable decisions. Well, health visitors are familiar with that sensation, aren't aren't we? You know, we know what it feels like to make an uncomfortable decision. And especially when it comes to prioritising things, when you're thinking, oh, which visits have I got capacity to do this week? Which was the most important visits? And and actually, I think having the the kind of confidence to recognise that that is what you're doing already on a daily basis, you're already making those uncomfortable decisions. But maybe not like vocalising them to the extent that we need to be and we are going back into the situation that we saw pre-implementation planning some organisations that caused so much worry so Mm. an example I met with a group of health visitors in a London trust at the time and they said to me that their uh, I think you know whether it was a modern matron or a you know a senior manager was saying on no account could any health visitor do a follow-up to a primary visit without asking permission from that person oh to do my. it. What, asking permission from the team leader or the, yeah. the manager? Yeah. Oh my and goodness what me. was fascinating with that kind of thing is that invariably what was happening was the majority of staff were just ignoring that. Yeah. And they were just doing the visits that yeah, they felt yeah. that they could fit in. To be, to, to pr- as well, it's your pin, isn't it? Well, and, and what's fascinating is that the, the kind of collusion that we all do to bad management so you know that the kind of the overwhelming was response was well if i know a family needs another visit i'll do the visit yeah and i'll just kind of not ask for permission because if i ask for permission it'll take up the time of actually doing the visit or well actually it'd be interesting because because the the the, the argument i put back to them is that what they should do with every family is Is just fill in a form that says i want to do a second visit and send that off to the manager yeah and And they'll be so inundated with forms that eventually they drop and at the same time, to file that yeah. form in the notes and to make a record to yeah, say... that is what we should all do. I'm not doing a, a, a follow-up visit until my manager gives me permission. Yeah. And again, in some ways, that's quite a supportive organisation because it puts all the risk on the manager mm. as long as each person does it. But yeah. it's also unsupportive in the sense that it's not supportive and trusting no. of your no, staff. Definitely. You know, you have to have a certain level of of trust in, in the professionals yeah. that you've got working around you and say, well, actually, you know, these are band six health visitors. They're highly trained. Yeah. They're highly skilled. Yeah. They have the ability to make decisions and assessments about who needs extra follow-up yeah. support. That's why we've employed them. So, you know, let's yeah. give them the freedom to be able to do that. And in a way, you know, my kind of... Uh, who's the purpose? Is it Cassandra that kind of looks to the future yes. and says it's all yeah. going to be dangerous and damaging and horrendous? <laughs> my kind of Cassandra moments are that we're going to start seeing more and more organisations start to operate in that kind of way. Okay. We're also going to see more and more organisations that will be bringing in the kind of time and motion studies again. And we had these pre-2011. Time. Time and motions. Time and motion. Yeah, so what invariably happens is you look for 
a company that says we're going to save you x percentage in running costs right they come in and it was horrendous what was happening uh, in kind of like the, the 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 late 2000s that at times they would sit next to a health visitor in their car they would kind of go to each visit with a, a sheet and log kind of the, the seconds for everything. <laughs> and what was sad was they wouldn't come back and say, well, actually, we know that this person only got 20 minutes to do, say, a primary visit. And actually, they probably needed an hour and a half if you include the travel, the appointment, the writing of the record. Yeah. What they would say is, actually, if you want to achieve an X percentage cut in the service cost, then if you say to that person they've only got... 20 minutes to do the primary visit you'll save this much money oh my so again it's that kind of way of approach completely ruthless in yeah. terms of the service user well and again what happens is that people just say well we're going to cut the service to that level and then people try and maintain the service at a level that they think is at least safe, safe. yeah and then it just catches the person in the middle that is genuinely trying to do a good job and then when it all goes wrong yeah they're the one that faces the sanction or the punishment. Yeah, and that again, you know, really true. Yeah, maybe I'm being way too negative and maybe, you know, actually for the vast majority of health visitors out there, this isn't the period that we're going to go into. But I really worry that the kind of the signals that we were seeing in the 2000s are being repeated mm. and they're being repeated possibly at a quicker rate mm. because of the kind of you know this this yo-yo effect mm. and i reckon at some point this year or early next year we will see health visitor numbers back at the level that we had pre-implementation yeah. plan and some health visitors have argued well what was the point we shouldn't have bothered with the implementation plan I would absolutely say that's not the message to take from this because if we hadn't bothered with the implementation plan and we'd have had three years of cuts that we've had now, we wouldn't have health visiting as a service. Yeah. So we'd have been completely obliterated by now if there was no. We were starting from a stronger point, which is why we are where we are now. We'd have been much worse off without it. Yeah. And again, you know, that kind of bit about, well, where next? Yeah. Hopefully, with this knowledge, we can make sure that as many people know of it as possible. And again, you know, if anyone was following me last week at uh, when I was at the Labour Party conference, it was uh, positive the number of uh, people in positions of hopefully at some point forming a government that will make decisions on this stuff. Mm know about the importance of early intervention you had you know really impressed with dr paul williams who is on the health select committee and who has kind of spearheaded getting the thousand and one the thousand critical days uh, in, in uh, inquiry going it's up until the day before the second birthday yeah yeah, 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 yeah. The, day yeah. Off the second birthday. so uh, he was on a panel with sharon hodgson who is labor's shadow public health minister okay. uh, they uh, did a panel with george hoskins from the wave trust who's doing their 7030 campaign yeah, yeah. you know absolutely know this stuff better than anyone yeah. talk about this stuff uh, Jonathan Ashworth you know people may thought think that I was stalking him last week <laughs> in, in, in Liverpool because wherever he was I was uh, you know every session that he was at talking about early intervention yeah. about health visiting about 
early uh, support. Was it, was it once he caught your eye in the crowd? And then, yeah, no, well, mention it. <laughs> we were talking of, about that, weren't yeah. we? we were saying, I was saying he needs to go in like a beard and a funny hat just to see if everyone still talks about it. Yeah. <laughs> and, and As a trouble, Dave, you do, I mean, you're, yeah, you're, you're quite a striking chap, you're tall. And yeah, and I, I always sit in the front as well. So that's, yeah. <laughs> but even if that is the reason, and maybe it is, but you never know, uh, it's that bit about you know, rooms full of people that yeah. aren't there to listen about yeah, health visiting no, are being told about, about health visitors yeah. and how they can be an answer to some of the issues that yeah, are being stored yeah, up. Absolutely. And, you know, John Ashworth, in terms of the stuff that he talks about in terms of alcohol abuse and kind of wanting to make sure that families don't have to kind of live his experience yeah. of having a parent that had... Uh, a significant alcohol problem and what support could have been in place that made a difference to his kind of start yeah. in life mm. uh, just well, really really important yeah. stuff well there's also been the thing about um, Sadiq Khan declaring oh, is, I don't know if he's declared I'm now realising I'm going out on a limb here you both look at me and go has he declared about crime being a public health yeah. issue uh, yeah. Yeah. and sort of following the Scotland example with John, John Tarkin yeah who I loved it <laughs> conference last year and so I mean that is something which hopefully from that they'll see that example of the uh, you know sort of hopefully at some point it'll drift down that yeah. the early intervention is really important in helping yes. stop those routes yeah. in and I suppose one of the things you know when I uh, was a, a student health visitor uh, the person uh, that I kind of came into contact up in Salford uh, who was a brilliant rep for Unite uh, one of the messages that Sally always said was for evil to prosper, good people stay silent. Mm. Yeah. And there is that kind of bit about, it's always kind of stayed with me in terms of maybe whatever I do will not make any change whatsoever in terms of the future of the NHS or the future of health visiting or the future of child I mean, health. I don't think anyone could say that was true, Dave, <laughs> given the amount you've already done. Well, even if, even if it is true, you know, it's that bit about I don't want to kind of look back and think that I didn't try. Mm. And that's the kind of message that I would give to everyone to out there. Visitors, you know, yeah. don't kind of think that your efforts or voice aren't needed yeah or that they are worthless because they're not you no. know even if it's doing small things it can make a change you know even if it is kind of turning up and speaking to your own mp and saying you know look at this figure that i've got in terms of caseload size you know it's more than the 250 that said it should be can you just write a letter to the local authority and ask them why this is the case mm, yeah. you know maybe that will make no difference at all but maybe that will be the kind of the pebble that starts the kind of avalanche that, mm. that we need. And we've got to look back in history. You know, health visitors have always been at the forefront of campaigning and mm. fighting and mm. wanting the world to be better. You know, CPHVA started in 1896. You know, it was the first all-female trade union group that affiliated to the TUC. You know, I feel really lucky to be surrounded by hugely inf influential women out there. You know, and we need those people to sort of rise up and yeah. to, to, to talk about these issues. Definitely. Because ultimately, the kids that we care about, they can't. Yeah. So, health is an advocacy it. role, isn't it? Absolutely. And, you know, we all know that and we all love that part of the role. You know, yeah. one of the reasons we're here. So, enjoy it. <laughs>
get involved. So know, I suppose, talk. yeah, that leads us on to the kind of general message from the <laughs> podcast, really. That's a really nice positive message to leave everybody with, I think. Yeah, to um, get involved. Yes. your MP. Yeah. Write letters and be noisy. Are you going to be yeah. at conference in a couple of weeks? I yes. will be at conference, so yeah. So uh, if anyone wants to come up and, and uh, say that these figures are wrong at CPHA conference, please do. Yeah. Or contact me on Twitter or send me an email or drop me a line in any other way that they feel able to do it. Uh, and yeah, let's uh, try and make sure this list is as accurate as possible. Definitely. Great, thanks so much. And you're on Twitter, and I always get muddled up with your Twitter handle. Yeah, it's at David A. Monday, so M-U-N-D-A-Y. I did go past you, there's Mondays who are estate agents down my way. Mm. I drove, I drove, rode past on my way in several <laughs> Mondays boards. Yes, yeah, no, they're at Prophetic of our meeting. Wonderful. So we'll see you at conference, which is all about, of course, looking to the future, your yeah, voice, you know, yeah. the impact you can have on health visiting, which is obviously very fitting. Yeah, and it's going to be, it's not going to be too late to buy tickets, I'm sure, when you hear this. So yeah. it's on the 17th and 18th of October down in Bournemouth. And if you look at CPHPA website, there'll be more information on there. Or if you catch the beginning of our last podcast, Amy did a lovely <laughs> bit talking about it a bit more for us. <laughs> so yeah, come and see us, come and say hi, um, and help contribute to this new movement of making change. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thanks very much for listening. Yeah, so you can get in touch with us on Twitter at IamAHV or, or via email IamAHealthVisitor at gmail.com and um, we're going to try and dip our toes in a bit with Instagram while we're at conference but we'll we'll tweet the <laughs> handle and things if that comes off. I might be Amy's toes are extremely dry when it comes to <laughs> Instagram. If I'm dipping them, I will be with a lot of coaching from Jenny. It'll be fine. I've got no idea what I'm It'll doing. It'll be fine. Anyway, <laughs> thanks so much for listening and uh, hope to uh, hear from you. Please rate and subscribe if you're listening to us on iTunes as well. Please. <laughs> thanks Take for listening. Care. Bye. Bye.